Welcome to the Ocean Hills Podcast. Our hope is that today's message would help you connect more deeply with God and with others. If you would like more information on what is happening in the Ocean Hills community, check out our website at oceanhills.org or download the Ocean Hills app. If you are encouraged by our ministry and would like to partner with us financially, you can give through your mobile device by texting Ocean Hills to 77977. We hope you enjoy this message. God, you're so, you're so, so good. Thank you for seeing us, seeing where we're at, seeing us on our couches, in our houses, on our computers, with our families, by ourselves. I thank you that you are a God who doesn't just see us, but you redeem our stories every day. Would we be a people who see those things? Would we point them out? Would we name them to each other? Would you keep our hearts and minds open? and ready to listen and hear what you have to speak to us today. In your name we pray, amen. Good morning, Ocean Hills. Welcome to our fascinating and complicated text for the day. We are in Colossians chapter three, chapter three, verse 22, through chapter four, verse one, and I have it up there on the slide. And by the way, if you haven't heard me speak before, I'm a teacher, so I like to have things on the screen and use slides, so roll with me. Uh, Our theme for today I also have on the slide, discipleship, where we are, and how we move to where Jesus wants us to be. Next. So, before we moved to Santa Barbara, our family was part of a church plant in our neighborhood. And that was a pretty positive experience for us in a lot of ways, learned a lot, but I have to admit some of my moments there were not my best moments. I was on the leadership team, which is kind of like the way it works at Ocean Hills. It's the elder board, kind of. And I remember being in one of our meetings and having this encounter. So I said to the leadership team, I said, I'm so frustrated. So many people in our church are doing this thing. And I'm not going to tell you what that is, but they're doing this thing. And instead, they should be doing this thing. I'm so frustrated. And one of the other people on the leadership team said, well, Holly, you're a leader. Lead them there. Take them there. Take them from here to there. And I sat there stunned, honestly, partly because I realized, oh, that's true. That is part of my task and responsibility to take them there and lead them there. But then I realized that something darker was going on inside me. Uh, I didn't want to do it that way. That sounded hard. That sounded slow. It sounded like it might take work, energy that I didn't want to put in. It sounded complicated. And I just wanted to be able to say to people, stop doing this, this is stupid. And do this instead, done. I wanted to do it the easy way. Here's our macro question for today. In discipleship, how do we push back well, correct well, Disciple each other well together within the context of relationship. How hard can we push? How could I have done that those years ago in a way that was done well, that led to people getting closer to where Jesus wanted them to be? 
let me ask you this. If you encounter someone who tells you that something you believe or something that you're doing is stupid, how do you take it? If that's never happened to you, good for you. Uh, but I'm guessing that's happened to a lot of us actually on social media. How do you take that? Is your gut impulse to say, oh, thank you for correcting me. I'm so happy to know that this thing I was thinking or doing is stupid. And now I'll do it the way you want me to do it. What if that person was a stranger? How would you take that? What if that person was someone close to you, though, your spouse, your best friend, your sister? Does that change the dynamic? Maybe a little bit? I mean, in my marriage, we can push back at each other pretty hard. Though I know that my husband is way too smart to use stupid language. Not helpful. How do we do this well? This matters next because in our text for today, what Paul is doing is discipling. The Apostle Paul writes lots of letters in the New Testament to followers of Jesus, communities of followers of Jesus in different locations. And he's always about discipleship. That's what he's up to. How is he doing that? How hard does he push? And honestly, it's complicated. This text today is on slaves and masters. I know, it's an interesting time to be in a text like this, isn't it? With everything that's happened in our country over the summer, this is probably one of the most heightened communal moments we've had as people who live in the United States when it comes to our country's own history of slavery. We are communally, corporately aware in ways that probably have never been exactly like this moment. And that's actually true globally in some ways too. So what do we do here? Hmm. Sometimes the urge can be actually to skip texts like this, to ignore them. Oh, too hard. We, we don't want to be in it. It's too messy and complicated and we don't want people to get hurt. But actually, I always take the view that I refuse to be afraid of texts. I tell my students this in my classes all the time. We are not going to be afraid of texts in here. We're going to face them head on. We're not going to ignore them or pretend like they're not there. We're going to dive in and see what's going on and try to hear them well. So what does it mean to hear a text like this well? Well, one of the things we need to know is that the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. Colossae is a city in the part of the world that we would now call Turkey, the country of Turkey. And it's pretty close to a really important city, Ephesus. Colossae is not quite as important, but still is sort of important enough in its own right. Something else that we need to know is that Paul doesn't seem to know the Christians as a group in Colossae very well. If you read the letter carefully, he, it doesn't seem to be that he's one of the people who helped plant or found that church. He mentions this guy named Epaphras, who seems to have been part of that group, that team, who got the church there going. So Paul's writing to this community, and his effort, his attempt is always discipleship. But he doesn't know most of them very well. So let me ask you again, how hard does he push? How hard would you push with a community of people that you don't know that well? There are many accusations against Paul, and I just wanted to put that on the screen so that I could name it and we could be honest about it. 
Paul's been accused over centuries of not being very interested in the plight of slaves, for example. Not very interested in justice for slaves. Also not very interested in women. He's been called a misogynist, among other things. Are those accusations fair? I would say to you, it's much more complicated than that, honestly. We have a range of texts in the New Testament where Paul is interacting with things like slavery. And to understand what he's doing here well, we need to contextualize him here well. Next. To do that and to help us hear this text the way an ancient person might have heard it, instead of just the way that we hear it in our own space and place today, I'm going to start at the end of the passage because his subversion of some of the cultural assumptions and stereotypes is much more obvious at the end. He addresses masters at the end, and in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. A couple points here. The fact that he tells masters that they have a master is so shocking in the ancient world as to be almost comical. Because masters weren't used to thinking of themselves as having masters, they were the master. Paul is reminding these masters that if they're Jesus people, they have an ultimate master. And that master is watching. The language about being just and fair was very rarely used when it came to care and concern for slaves. This is language that got used for free people. Justice and fairness applied to free people in the ancient world and not to slaves, but Paul throws that in this verse here to masters and reminds them that they have a master in heaven, and the clear implication is, hey guys, your master is watching you and he cares about justice and fairness, so watch it. Now, you might say, mm, okay, Holly, I mean, I hear you, I hear you, but not far enough, not close enough. Paul really needed to say what we would say today, which is so obviously slavery is a horrible, terrible system, and we need to dismantle it. Let me ask you this. How often did people say those kinds of things in the ancient world? To understand that well, we need to know a few things about slavery in the Roman Empire and then how Paul fits into that. So slavery in the Roman Empire in the first century was... Honestly, an, a, a cultural assumption. It was everywhere. The, their economy was based on it. Everyone just assumed that that's how it worked. And that's been true for most people groups throughout, throughout history, actually. So what did it look like? How could someone become a slave, for example? This is a really important question right now because in this country, in the United States, our narrative of slavery has been and is very much racialized. It has a lot to do with color of skin and the perceptions of where someone comes from, but then the way that someone looks. Our slave narrative has taken that kind of shape. In the ancient world, it had absolutely nothing to do with how someone looks. It had to do with other factors, though. Things like, hmm, if we're the Romans and we conquer you as a people group, whoever you are, no matter where you live or what you look like, if we conquer you, of course we're going to take slaves from your population. Of course we will. People could become slaves by selling themselves into slavery if they ran into legal or financial problems. It was a way to, to find an out and to fix that situation. If you got kidnapped by things like pirates, which is so interesting, you could become a slave. If you were born to a slave, you would become a slave. This one, actually, the next one I find the most interesting. If you were an unwanted child, you often became a slave. 
was very common in the ancient world for people to abandon kids that they didn't want for a variety of reasons. And if that child didn't die from exposure to the elements or wild animals, then often they'd be picked up by slavers and raised until they were old enough to work, which is five or six, age five or six, and then they'd, they'd be sold. However, importantly, Jews in the ancient world, and Paul's a Jew, Jesus is a Jew, Jews are famous in the ancient world for not doing that. They opposed that practice, they condemned it, and then Christians followed suit. So compared to their neighbors, Jews and Christians were very different in this way. Slavery in the ancient world isn't better than our nation's history of slavery. I'm not saying that. Please hear me. But it, there are some differences. Some of the similarities, though, include the idea that the master totally owned the slaves. Slaves were property. And the master could do what they wished. They owned the slaves' labor. They owned the slaves' sexuality. Lots of stories in the ancient sources about abuse of slaves. Though, of course, in the ancient sources, people usually aren't very worried about that, often not even calling it abuse. It was just how things were and how it was set up. So how does Paul fit in here? What's interesting is that Paul is joining a group of Jewish voices who are, in their own kind of careful ways, resisting slavery, insisting that slaves be treated better insisting that masters have some standards that they're being held to. We have a few of these voices outside of Jewish circles, but many more in Jewish circles, and Paul is joining that, that sort of movement of resistance. Now you might say, mm, small, small though, Holly, too small. I mean, why didn't Paul get a bunch of people together and elect the right leaders who could overhaul the system? Wouldn't that be lovely? In the ancient world, the emperor becomes emperor usually by killing the previous emperor in the Roman Empire. So people, average kind of local people, didn't have that kind of power over their systems, didn't have a say. So what is Paul left with? He's left with doing small local acts of discipleship in ways that are meaningful in local contexts. Next. By the way, <clears throat> Paul can be much more radical, much closer to our version, maybe, of what we would hope for him to be. If you haven't read the book of Philemon, please go read it. Please read it. It is probably my favorite letter of Paul's. Wow. Or maybe 1 Corinthians. Anyways, it's up there in the top few. It's 25 verses. It'll take you just a few minutes. Read it. Philemon is so interesting to me because the main theme is also our theme from our text today, slavery. Paul's writing to this guy named Philemon, and Philemon lives in Colossae. Now, sit with me in this for a minute. So Paul's writing to a guy who's part of that church in Colossae. And I already said, Paul doesn't seem to know that church in Colossae very well, at least as a group. He doesn't know very many of them, but he definitely knows Philemon. You know what he says to Philemon? My paraphrase. He says, hey, Philemon, <clears throat> you have this slave named Onesimus who used to be with you and now he's with me. And he's a follower of Jesus and I find him really amazing. And so I'm sending him back and I want you to welcome him as a brother. Let me ask you this. How often in the ancient world do you think people used brother language, family language, for slaves? Not very often. And in case we miss that point, the first point, Paul basically repeats it. Again, at the end of the letter, he says, welcome him as you would welcome me. Now, Paul and Philemon are clearly social peers. So Paul is elevating Onesimus the slave to the social status of Philemon and Paul. How do we know that Paul and Philemon even knew each other well? It comes out pretty clearly in the letter. Paul can't wait to come and visit. Paul says, don't forget, you owe me your very self. 
which most scholars think means that Paul is the reason why Philemon became a Christian in the first place. So Paul's reminding Philemon, hey, you wouldn't even be a part of this Jesus thing if it weren't for me. Paul pushes even harder, though. You want to hear how? Paul says, oh, Philemon, you're such a faithful, upstanding dude. I just know you're going to do even more than what I'm asking of you. Paul includes other people on the letter, making it public and not private. So he isn't just writing to Philemon, you know, a kind of agreement or discussion between two friends. Paul makes sure that other people on the side of Philemon, other people in the church in Colossae, know what Paul is asking Philemon to do. Public. And this is my favorite part. Paul says, prepare a room for me because I hope to come and see you. In other words, I'm coming. I'm checking up on you because I want to do, I want to know if you've done the right thing. I want to know if your commitment to Jesus has totally revolutionized the way that you inter interact with Onesimus. And you should welcome him as a brother. Now, when I teach this book, Philemon, in my classes at Westmont, students often say, ooh, ooh, I don't like it, I don't like it, Paul, too pushy. You're pushing too hard, Paul. It feels manipulative, and you need to let Philemon make his own choices and his own conscience between him and God. You know what I say to my students? I say, well, Paul and Philemon are clearly good buddies. How hard can you push in your closest intimate relationships? when something big, when something important is on the line. I actually hope we all have those people in our lives who can push us well, push back at us, make us uncomfortable even, as we pursue things that are just and fair. So Paul isn't pushing back this hard on a stranger. He's pushing back hard on his friend. Secondly, Paul is pushing hard. He's pulling out all the stops. I guess that's this and not this. Totally true. He's burning his social capital, we might say, but he's doing it on behalf of someone else who doesn't have that social capital. He's doing it on behalf of a slave, not for his own benefit, for the benefit of someone else who doesn't have the kind of access and privilege that Paul has. And then I say to my students, how hard would you push on behalf of a slave? So we have both of these. We have Colossians and Philemon, and they're sister letters in a way because the recipients are both living in the same area, and we see Paul doing different things with these different letters. Why is that? The, the, the big kind of question there and, and the, the, the pivotal point there has to do with how well he knows his audiences. We also have letters like 1 Corinthians, and there Paul says in chapter 7, two slaves, he says, if you can gain your freedom, do so. So he's not assuming that slaves should just be happy with where they are for the rest of their lives. He says, if you can gain your freedom, take it. Take it. So that gives us another glimpse into Paul's heart regarding slavery. And now we're back to Colossians. Next. I put this whole passage now where Paul's addressing slaves on the screen so we can read through it together. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Next. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you will, have paid, you will be paid back for the wrong you have done, for God has no favorites. Okay, next. So, here we are. What do we do with this? We're not going to ignore it or pretend like it's not there. We're going to face it head on. 
And facing it head on means knowing something about households and household codes. So this section of Colossians is what scholars call a household code, and these were common in the ancient world. Basically, they are given as instructions to people, usually the elite male, who would have been in charge of the household. And that guy, that man, is given advice on how to run it. So he's told, typically in the ancient world, to keep his wife in line, and his kids in line, and his slaves in line. That's some of the context for this. And households did comprise all those people in the ancient world. And in some contexts today, households are similar, where it's not just a nuclear family, but it might be all kinds of extended relatives, and even people who aren't related but contribute in some way to the household and have connections. All of those people would be considered part of the household. So what is Paul doing here? We see both similarities and differences compared to other household codes in the ancient world. I mean, the fact that he's using one to start with is a similarity. In other words, he's using something people would know. He's not making it up. People wouldn't say, oh my word, what is this? They would say, oh, okay, I see what we're doing here. But there are differences too. One of them is how he addresses slaves. He talks directly to them. He says, hey, slaves. Okay, that's my paraphrase. He says slaves but he treats them as responsible humans who can make decisions and have agency. This would be quite surprising in the ancient world because slaves weren't ever talked to in household codes, they were talked about. So that their master, who is usually male, though women could own slaves too, but the master was told, keep your slaves in line. Here, Paul talks directly to slaves, and people would notice that in the ancient world. <clears throat> we also have this text in the same book, Colossians, Chapter, and same chapter even, chapter three, that helps us understand the household code. This passage is famous. There's a kind of sister passage in another one of Paul's letters. 3.11, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now, Gentile or Jew, that's a Jewish way of dividing up the entire world because you're either Jewish or not, and if you're not, you're Gentile, so that covers everybody. Um, circumcised or uncircumcised, Jews were famously circumcised in a specific way in the ancient world. Barbarian, so people called other people barbarians if they didn't speak Greek very well and understand Greek culture. So that was definitely a slam in terms of how people tended to use it. And Scythians were famous in the ancient world for having the stereotype of being kind of low class, uncivilized. So Paul's expecting that people would know how this language is used, and he says here, in the Jesus community, in other words, here, this stuff, none of this is the way it is outside of the Jesus community. Here, we don't have these kinds of distinctions. So how does this fit with the household code where he tells slaves to obey their masters? You either say something like, oh, I guess Paul changed his mind, or he's inconsistent, or you say, Maybe Paul's doing something more nuanced and complex here. In other words, maybe he's working in this real tension between the ideal and the reality. In other words, the ideal, what's actually true in Jesus, is that there is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free. That is what's true in Jesus. So that's here. Here's the vision. But then the reality right in front of us is that Paul lives in a world where slavery is everywhere and most people just assume that's how things work. Even people who are followers of Jesus are still living within that cultural context. So how do you move people from the reality of what is and what they're living and what their culture tells them to expect to closer to this vision and what's actually true in Jesus? How do you do that? You tell people that they're stupid and they're doing it the wrong way? 
I would suggest not the most persuasive way to communicate. If you want buy-in, you got to do it differently. And so maybe you move people a step or two closer towards the reality because then the next time you talk to them, you can move them a step or two closer again. That is what Paul is doing in Colossians 3. And that's what we call discipleship. Next. A couple other pieces I wanted to point out about what Paul says to slaves that would be very surprising in the ancient world. He reminds them that they have an inheritance as a reward. Inheritance. What is that? The New Testament uses that language often to talk about the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is a Jewish way of saying, hey guys, God sees everything that's broken here, all the way from Holly's brokenness, personal individual brokenness, up to systemic brokenness. God sees it all, and God's working to fix it. And the New Testament says Jesus is at the center of that fixing. God's doing it in and through Jesus. And someday that's going to be done. God's restoration project is going to be done. So Paul says to these slaves, he says, remember, you have an inheritance waiting for you. So it's kind of a long, long game, big picture perspective that he's trying to get them to remember, trying to get them to buy into. Also, and this is my favorite, uh, do you think, based on everything I've told you already, that slaves could inherit in the ancient world? No. Slaves don't inherit. Children inherit. So Paul is using here language that never gets applied to slaves because they're slaves. And he's basically saying, no, you, all y'all, you're sons and daughters. And you have an inheritance waiting for you. Come on, guys. I love that part. He also reminds them who their real master is. He says, you, your real master is in heaven. That's Jesus. And remember, he already told the masters that. So if the masters and the slaves have the same ultimate master, Jesus, what does that mean? Do you see how Paul's playing with some of these lines here in terms of the way that people got, got separated out? We would say stratified. God's, or Paul's pushing back on some of those things. Um, also, Jesus, let's see. Does Jesus know what it's like to be treated as a slave? How does Jesus die? Even my six-year-old knows that one. He's crucified. What categories of people were crucified in the ancient world. Two main categories, slaves and rebels. We would call them terrorists, people who push back against Roman rule and power. Jesus literally dies a slave's death. And in some of Paul's other letters, he makes a big deal about Jesus taking on all these slave qualities and realities. This is supposed to be encouraging. Their true master knows their reality and situation. He also warns them, though, not to do wrong. He says, basically, judgment comes. Your master is watching you. Now, a lot of people in our context haven't liked this, that Paul tells them not to do wrong, and there is a lot we could say on this point. I will say, though, hmm, when it comes to Jesus, did anyone do wrong to him? How did he respond? Did he do wrong back? Because I got to tell you, friends, that's my, my default. When someone wrongs me, I want to wrong back and actually do it more because they deserve it and they're the worst. And Paul is basically saying that's not how it works in the Jesus kingdom. That's not how it works in the kingdom of God. It's a hard word, friends. But again and again, the New Testament calls us, compels us to live like Jesus, take another step in that direction.
Then he says at the end, remember, there's no favoritism. God doesn't have favorites. Now, from a slave's perspective in the ancient world, that's practically laughable because obviously there's favoritism. They don't have it. They're at the bottom. But Paul says, no, that's not how it works either in this Jesus kingdom of God thing. In your inheritance, things are leveled out, equaled out, and hold on to that. And then this verse we've already been in, chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul talks to masters and tells them, hey, treat your slaves in ways that are just and fair. That concludes this passage. What's just and fair? There's a lot we could say about that, but at the very least, it has to be connected to things that God cares about. And Paul says, Jesus is watching. Jesus is paying attention, so live well. Take another step. Take another step. Next. All right, so here's my macro question again. In discipleship, what do we do? How do we push back? How do we correct well? How do we move people from the realities of where they are, where we are, where I am? In my cultural space, how am I moved from here to here, one more step closer to, the, to what's actually true and real in Jesus and where God is taking the world? I want to leave you with two questions today. I've been thinking about these this week, two challenges. Oh, I forgot to say my other point. What if we saw this text as a challenge and not a weapon? This text has often been weaponized. I just would like to admit that and say that it has been used in all kinds of terrible ways, in all kinds of contextual spaces, and it's not okay. Honestly, I wish Paul would have gone farther. I wish he had been more radical in Colossians than he is. It was easier for this text to be weaponized than Philemon. But hardly anyone reads Philemon. It's like a black hole of New Testament scholarship. Why is that? Read Philemon. I wish Paul had gone farther. But if I stop there and don't ask some of the other questions that I've asked today, then I feel like I haven't given Paul and this text a fair shot. Because what does it mean for me to honor the reality that this text was not written first to me? I am not its first recipient. There was a whole space and people in context. And especially with texts like this, we need to know something about that. So here are my two challenge questions. They both have to do with discipleship and pushing back. On whom might God be asking you to push back? This is the favorite one, right? Hmm, who do I need to push back on? Let's see. Who needs to be one step closer? especially in terms of what's right and fair. And how can you do that well so you'll, you'll be heard well? Paul doesn't walk into these situations and say, well, you're stupid, stop it. He does persuade, he does push buttons, he does challenge and subvert. But he also wants an audience who will listen to him. And then this second one is hard. How will you respond this week if someone pushes back on you? Especially in terms of what's right and fair. How can we give people the benefit of the doubt, especially brothers and sisters in Christ who we, knew, who we know of our best interests at heart and want to help us together get closer to the reality that God is dreaming for all of us? What might that look like for you? So I'd like to pray very quickly before I leave. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we know that you're speaking. We know that you don't stop speaking. And we ask, 
We ask that you would speak to us through this complicated, crazy, overwhelming text today. Speak. Move. And give us soft hearts, receptive hearts to what you might be saying. In your name, amen. Before you re-enter your day, we hope that you will take just a few moments to pause and respond to what God has put on your heart through this message. Thank you again for listening to the Ocean Hills podcast. For access to more sermons, visit the Watch and Listen page on OceanHills.org or find them on the Ocean Hills app.